Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. Hi, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here at Raptor Ridge Winery. It's January 21st, 2019. We're here with Scott and Annie Scholl. Uh, and we're going to start you off by asking you, why wine? It wasn't intentional. <laughs> uh, it, wine sort of chose me or us. Um, in fact, I grew up in a family of basically teetotalers. Um, but moving to Oregon and falling in with a group of people that like to explore wines of the world, tasting a different wine each month, I, um, I sort of fell in love with the notion of these flavors and these aromas and um, the social aspect of sharing a nice bottle of wine with a nice meal. Um, that's where it started. Uh, had no intention of getting into the production side of it. It was more just a social thing once a month. That's why wine for me. <laughs> I met this guy <laughs> after wine had already uh, chosen him and we were both in the tech industry and I was admiring his passion and enthusiasm for this kind of hobby that he'd taken to the next level. Um, and I uh, have always thought that a family business would be an interesting path for life. And uh, tech was kind of not my bag. And we um, ended up falling together, falling in love. And part of, of being with Scott was helping with harvest and helping with bottling. And I really enjoyed the, the dual aspect of the intellectual side of of winemaking and the physical, the physical, the hard physical work. Um, it was a fun hobby to be a part of. Um, and then the hobby swiftly became a side business and then a career. So that's it. It got way out of control. <laughs> <laughs> so, what brought you to Oregon then in the first place? Let's back up a little bit and talk about that and then how you, from there, how you got into. Yeah, um, my first career was as an engineer and um, a strategic planner. In, uh, in 1980, I got recruited by a high-tech company that was expanding out of Silicon Valley, wanting to create the Silicon Forest. Um, Intel uh, recruited me out of grad school, and so uh, I, I flew out here from uh, University of Missouri and started work in the Aloha campus in um, 1981. And uh, it was a great company to work for. Uh, which I did off and on for, I guess, over 30 years. Um, worked for Intel for about seven years, left to form a startup, uh, which is where I met Annie. One of the several great things that came out of sequent computer <laughs> systems was meeting my future wife. And these friends that um, uh, love to share in wines of the world uh, once a month, all of that was derived from sequent computer systems. So after a career of um, uh, product management and business development in both uh, Intel and sequent, um, 
the hobby got out of control and uh, it, it uh, first cost Annie her day job. <laughs> <laughs> the business grew kind of more quickly than we planned and uh, I think it was around 1999 when IBM bought Sequent Computer Systems and we didn't want to work for IBM. Uh, I think Annie quit her day job and went mm -hmm. full-time into the wine industry mm -hmm. working for someone else. Or Willa Kenzie. So I was at Willa Kenzie in the early days when um, Laurent was the winemaker and general manager and Jimmy was the assistant winemaker and um, had an affinity with Bernie and Ronnie because of our tech background. We spoke the same language. I had been a project manager and more on the marketing sales and sales training side of the, of the tech industry and so it was a nice segue to work uh, on marketing projects at Willa Kenzie and really learn from the ground up. Um, got involved pretty quickly with distribution audiences and developing training um, at Willa Kenzie for sales and then also got very involved just as Oregon Pinot Camp was launching. So my background, my, my academic background was in cognitive development and my vocational background in tech, as I said, was really focused on marketing and more on, on education and curriculum development. So that really dovetailed nicely into what was happening in the early days with Oregon Pinot Camp and developing that set of curricula that is constantly being evolved um, from year to year. Um, so I really cut my teeth in the Oregon wine industry, gratefully working shoulder to shoulder with people like Pat Dudley, Susan Sokol-Blosser, um, David Adelsheim, and a variety of other founders, um, the Ponzi's of course. And it was just a really great time to be coming up through the industry and learning and growing at an ex exponential pace um, as we reached out to educate the rest of um, the wine industry and, and the um, restaurateurs, retailers, sommeliers about the Willamette Valley. Let's talk about, you said, you, excuse me, you didn't have much of a background in wine before you got to Oregon. You started kind of learning as a hobby. Let's talk about kind of your initial impressions of Oregon's wine industry and as you started to learn more about it and then what made you actually want to pursue it further. Yeah, um, well, it my initial impressions were that it was small, <laughs> especially in, with the benefit of hindsight. Uh, you know, 1981, we could go back and check the facts, but at least in the northern Willamette Valley, maybe 20 to 30 wineries, um, most of them ma and pa operations. Um, they were um, hands-on people that were doing it themselves, teaching themselves, um, and very collaborative with one another. Um, I was interviewed by a wine uh, writer one time, and once the uh, article was published, he used the big word to describe us. He said, um, autodidact, which just means self-taught. And I think those were my impressions of the folks in the Oregon wine industry. So birds of a feather flock together. Um, it was really just uh, reading every book, talking to every winemaker. There still is a winemakers club, principally for hobbyists, called the Westside Winemakers um, 
group. Um, Dick Erath and uh, Dick Ponzi were founding members. Um, Peter Rosbeck of Shenane was, uh, you know, one of my cohorts there. Um, but these were principally home winemakers that um, once a month got together to taste their their um, their home brews to talk about mistakes, talk about successes. Um, so it was it was quite a uh, ferment of its own that was happening. Um, these exponents changing from uh, ideas, exchanging ideas from one with another. Um, so I really was self-taught until uh, I decided that um, you know reading books alone was not the fastest way to um, to success. So um, we had several great institutions here in the valley: uh, Chemeketa Community College, um, Oregon State University had um, extension service classes for budding young winemakers, as did UC Davis. So I basically <laughs> signed up for every weekend class I could get um, from California through Oregon uh, to just explore. Every time you ask a question and get it answered, then five other questions um, come in its place. So, and I think we're still doing that. You know, uh, Gosh, this is our, our 25th finish that we're starting right now. Uh, it's been a long, strange trip, as this <laughs> song goes. When, so when you actually decided to start growing or to start producing, what, was it, what, what steps did you take to, to kind of go down that road? Um, kind of an illegal step, maybe. <laughs> uh, just making wine with uh, my buddies that came out of this wine tasting group. Um, t we would throw in together each vintage and purchase uh, uh, an allotment of grapes. Uh, principally, we were getting our fruit from Roy and Betty Wall um, of Wall Vineyard, and I think they're still uh, growing and supplying to some of the the wine industry here. Um, we would we started out making wine. Uh, I would like to say the ground floor, but it was actually the basement of uh, Pete Gibson's house in 1988, um, and quickly outgrew that space and started making wine in what was our sheep barn at the time. Um, and in the early 90s, we discovered that um, we probably, I guess this is okay to have on camera, that's past the statute of limitations. We were making more wine than was legal. Uh, we weren't selling it, we were just uh, sharing it. So that part's fine. Um, and uh, I would take bottles of wine out to dinner with us and as sort of um, an apology to the restaurateur, I'd always send a bottle back to the kitchen and we'd enjoy some with our friends. We were at the Red Hills Provincial restaurant one evening. Uh, Richard and Nancy Gertz uh, were the proprietors at the time. Richard, being the chef, came running out of the kitchen one time and said, who made this wine? And I thought you know something was wrong with it. Uh, Richard said, no, this is this stuff's better than a lot of what I can buy right now. You seriously should consider commercializing this. And so that was kind of the impetus I needed to research um, how to make it all legal. And, uh, and that was in 1994. Uh, so we spent the year renovating our sheep barn to make it a uh, proper hygienic uh, commercial winery. 
1995, the shingle was hung and the first commercial vintage was made of Raptor Ridge. Um, in 1996, I met Annie um, as, a, as a friend and a colleague, and uh, we went from there. So what was your reaction, Annie, when you learned that this man you're interested in had his own wine label up in the, up in the hills? I was pretty fascinated by it. It was just really fun to see his enthusiasm, and we'd run into each other in the cafeteria at work at Sequent, and he'd say, well, here's what I did today. I had the DEQ and the TTB and the OLCC, and he'd, he'd rattle off 16 different entities that he'd had to get approval from, and he was just so proud of all of the endeavors that were going on outside of his day job, and um, that's when people that we worked with started talking about how Scott Shaw had an amazing work-life balance, which <laughs> just cracks us up to this yeah, day, because like it was more work, like a work-work balance. balance but, but it was indeed something he time. was passionate about. So I just really enjoyed his enthusiasm. I wasn't much of a, a wine drinker myself at the time, and I really didn't know that much about wine. I had just moved from California and, frankly, hadn't really been all that interested in the wines that had been put in front of me. And Scott really showed, opened my eyes to the, the intricacies and delicacies of Pinot Noir, um, both uh, from Oregon and, and Burgundy uh, wines as well. Um, and I found pretty early on that I have a real deep love for white wine varietals, which continues to this day. So that's probably more what my palate is attuned to. And I, I just hadn't really explored that realm at all. Um, so it was a really nice kind of eye-opener for me and I just love the whole um, endeavor of pairing food with wine and making it an entire experience. Uh, it brings so many people together. Um, it really demystifies the kitchen for me. Um, it makes um, higher-end cuisine a little more approachable to me because it all comes down to what you, what you like and what, what resonates with you. Um, and that's what we try to do with our customers too, is make everything we do more approachable. So that's, that really resonates with me, is the whole um, kind of appealing to every man, every woman, and, and bringing this really fun approach to enjoying food and wine to the level where it's approachable by anyone. So you talked about your work-work balance there. How did you <laughs> balance in the early years uh, basically two full-time jobs. You know, looking back, I have no idea <laughs> uh, how I did it, other than uh, first principles. Um, I saved up all of my vacation to do harvest. Uh, evenings and weekends were consumed with looking after the wines. Um, the first five years of Raptor Ridge, from 95 through 2000, we were buying fruit in, which means we were writing leases on particular blocks of vineyards throughout the valley. Um, in 2000, we were able to um, find this place here in the Shehala Mountains, the Raptor Ridge Estate, uh, which was a defunct cherry orchard. So we spent the spring of 2000 clearing the land of all but 20 of these cherry trees. And um, that, uh, that era, we were collaborating uh, extensively with Scott and Lisa Neal of Cour de Terre, um, helping them plant their vineyard. 
Uh, so Scott and his crew helped me graft uh, the first uh, about four acres of vine. So we, um, we all sat around in the greenhouse and bench grafted several thousand vines and grew them up that spring in order to um, plant them in the, in the fall of 2000. So uh, in addition to we making wine, we got into <laughs> grafting plants, planting the vineyard, learning how to run a surveyor's uh, sextant to lay out the vines. Um, Scott came over and uh, together we pounded the posts of uh, what was um, Adolfo's block out there. Adolfo was the uh, vineyard foreman that worked for Cordeterre and for Raptor Ridge. Um, so we, we shared Adolfo. Um, two years later, Macario um, similarly was working for Cordeterre as well as um, we used Macario and a few of the other guys to lay out and plant the second block named Macario's block. Um, so yeah, if I if I had to do it, maybe I don't have as much energy as I now as I did when I was you know, <laughs> 40 years old. Um, but uh, every every spare moment was filled with um, vineyards and and winemaking and wine marketing, mm -hmm. and it you know I just think it's very interesting and it was it was a compelling um, time of of creation, and and now it's it's it remains very interesting. We're sort of at. Uh, for us, stasis of, of uh, we're not growing production. We're at 10,000 cases of wine a year. Um, and we're not trying to make more wine. We're trying to make more interesting wine. Um, thankfully, a lot of those same early vineyards that contracted with us still are, you know, well past 20 years, whether it's, uh, you know, Meredith Mitchell Vineyard or we worked with Shea Vineyard, uh, from his early days in 1996, and adding some um, other, uh, for us, new vineyards, but older, experienced gems of the Oregon wine industry, uh, Temperance Hill, um, and... Uh, Grand Moraine. Grand Moraine is, mm -hmm. uh, is a vineyard we work with for, for over 12 years now. So it's a, it's a nice portfolio of interesting sites, including our own here in Tuscawalami Vineyard, as we call it, that um, they keep the wine business very interesting from um, a creative point of view. And backing up a second, Raptor Ridge, why the name? I'll let Annie take that yeah. one. She, she explains that story really well. So we've always been um, people who enjoy just watching hawks, owls, and kestrels throughout the valley. Um, we are on a ridge, hence ridge. Um, there are raptors here. There are not velociraptors here, or at least we have not found the eggs yet. But um, raptors are birds of prey, so hawks, owls, kestrels. And our vineyard actually is a really wonderful habitat for raptors in that it is a protected valley. Um, there's quite a bit of fly, fly zone area between us and our lovely neighbors, the Ponzi's. Um, across the valley and we've been working with the Audubon Society and another group called Wings Over Wine to actually help 
as a release site for raptors that have been severely injured and have been brought back to the point where they can be released into the wild. Uh, why do that other than for their, the enjoyment of, of the species? Um, it also helps us out in the vineyard because we, all, we like everyone, have problems with mice and moles and, and um, gophers. And so the more we can encourage raptors to see this as a habitat, the better off we are and the less other invasive things we need to use to get rid of the critters that tunnel under the vines. And then perhaps even more importantly, towards the end of the growing season, into the fall, um, we get, depending on how late the, the grapes are hanging, we get um, flocks of very hungry migratory birds that come through. And people use various techniques to keep them out of the vineyards, um, propane cannons, netting, which is the most time consuming. And shotguns. Shotguns, <laughs> just shooting into the air to scare the birds. So the more um, we have raptors kind of circling, literally circling the area, the better. So they just really discourage, and you can watch as one will fly through, the, the flocks just scatter. Um, and that's a little less predictable than even the propane cannons to have their presence um, in the vineyard. So we, when we first laid out the vineyard, we also made space for um, owl boxes and raptor perches. Um, so it's really a symbiotic relationship with them. Um, so that's In fact, earlier I mentioned the name of our vineyard, Tuscawalami, mm -hmm. uh, which is kind of a mouthful, but um, I was involved with a group that was um, naming the ABAs and um, using a book called, I think, Oregon Historical Names, and just paging through, I found Tuscawalami. Uh, as an indigenous term, really out of eastern uh, Oregon, out of the Wallawa area, that was named, um, naming a creek for the place where the owls live. And said, so oh, that'd be an interesting name for, for uh, Raptor Ridge Estate, Tuscawalami. Um, and so you'll see that on, on all of our estate wines, Estate Tuscawalami Vineyard. So let's talk about the early days a little bit, uh, the 95-2000 range you're talking about in there. What were some of the challenges that were foreseen and, and perhaps unforeseen as you were sort of trying to get off the ground? You know, surprisingly, I think the, um, the, the craft of wine growing uh, in Oregon was still um, a bit embryonic specifically. Here's an example. Um, folks weren't really on top of uh, crop estimations. Uh, they would let Mother Nature set whatever fruit um, she would, maybe do a slight tune-up of clusters that were bunched a little bit, but it was really before the days of super accurate cluster counts, weights, lag weights, and um, intentionally uh, hanging an amount of fruit to get a quality wine. Uh, I remember bringing together a group of people and discussing uh, some statistical methods for doing um, exactly this. And once some of the early research that I think Steve Price did um, on how to do crop yield prediction. Um, and it, it was also a second example really before the days of people having, um, I'll call them tirage tables, sorting tables. 
So these things were just coming into the um, toolbox of, of Oregon wine growers and sharing that knowledge with one another um, and other such things um, really accelerated the quality of, of Oregon wines. Um, sharing information about what clones work well. It was sort of the advent of when Dijon clones of both Pinot Noir and soon thereafter Chardonnay were coming on the market. Um, so the fact that this group of people were self-taught and collaborative and um, friendly with one another, realizing the challenge was getting our wines uh, to world-class quality, getting our wines out into the marketplace, the challenge was not competing with one another. That attitude, I think, greatly accelerated the quality of Oregon wines, um, both the quality of the wine and the quality of the messaging, the marketing, the story behind it. Without that, I don't think we, as an industry, could have gone from zero to world-class in under 50 years, which is what's happened. Mm -hmm. And that's, uh, you know, I can almost get teary thinking about how lucky we were to kind of stumble into that right, right when uh, everything was, was exploding. Yeah. And I think two major um, shapers, for lack of a better term, two major events that shaped that were Oregon Pinot Camp and the Steamboat Winemakers Conference. Um, where that collaborative nature was encouraged and fostered and very much admired by people who are coming in from the outside, whether it be a winemaker from France or a retailer from Vegas. You know, just when they come to Oregon, they see how much we enjoy each other's company as colleagues, how much we collaborate, how many secrets we share with each other for that betterment of the breed of Pinot or Pinot Gris, whatever the varietal is. And that that's certainly something that took a hold of our hearts and made us want to be a part of this industry. We don't take that for granted. And it's one of my main aims in life to make sure we never lose that, so, as an industry. So Annie, in your early days, as you were kind of catching the bug, I'm curious, <laughs> what route you took in terms of education and, and getting yourself into the industry and then sort of what your initial roles were and how mm -hmm. you grew into them? Um, I guess I, it, I was more in the, on the path of learning by doing. Um, there was, I didn't go the route of unology or viticulture. Um, I of course listened and soaked in like a sponge all of the information that Scott shared with me day in, day out about, you know, what he was doing in the vineyards, um, what he was doing in the cellar. Um, but I am always someone who feels most comfortable with kind of a layperson's audience and translating the technology to somebody who may not be a technical expert. That's what I used to do in tech. It's, it's kind of my role in life, it seems, um, to be working with the subject matter experts and translating what they have to say to the average person on the street, who I, I consider myself more the average person on the street. So I think it was more like a shift in 
my vocation than it was an educational path. Um, but I certainly, as I said earlier, I certainly did learn an immense amount working shoulder to shoulder with the pioneers mm -hmm. on Pino Camp, um, listening. I worked my way up through the Pino Camp board and I was eventually president in 2008. And part of my role that I took very seriously was making it around to all the different seminars, listening and making sure that we had the right speakers um, that could really convey the messaging well. And as a result, all of that educational material sunk in. So I was learning my pitch, even though I didn't know it. I was learning my pitch while I was reviewing these materials so that when I went on the road and talked to distributors and talked to restaurateurs and retailers, I had that, those stories and that, that information was really, had soaked into my soul. So it was a great way to learn from my style. Um, so I never took traditional schooling or education um, as a path, other than a few marketing classes here and there. And what was selling wine like as you got into selling Raptor Ridge wines? Uh, what was it like? Uh, in the early days, it was really communicating to people that there was actually a wine industry in Oregon and we did grow grapes somewhere other than California in the United States and then educating people about where Oregon was on the map um, and that there is life outside of Portland um, <laughs> so it was really funny in the early days that um, there really wasn't a knowledge beyond the state of what we were doing here and it was really pretty basic information that we needed to convey to people um, I think getting involved in, at various levels in different industries, different states, um, with nonprofits, um, getting involved in educational institutions like um, Oklahoma State University has a wine forum and HRED programs across the nation that are interested in vectoring their students off to learn about wine industries is a great way to communicate and bring the next generation up with more knowledge of what's going on here in Oregon. Um, it's a great way to find champions that end up disseminating our message across the United States as they graduate and move on to careers in hospitality and restaurant industry. Um, what else? Uh, seeing that tide turn from um, bigger, bolder reds to people actually being interested in Pinot Noir was incredible. Um, <laughs> happening around 01, 02, um, people really starting to get on board the Pinot Noir train and um, being a part of that um, blossoming was really fun. Um, that's about all I can think of right now. Sure. <laughs> And Scott, how did you develop uh, sort of your vineyard philosophy and, and winery philosophy as you were kind of growing into the business? Uh, a lot of experimentation, a lot of hands-on, um, observing cause and effect of what I did in the vineyard and what it gave me in the cellar. Um, you know, I think that uh, being so connected to the plants from having grafted them ourselves kind of gives you a 
uh, a corner on on the market of, of, of what's going on you know from the ground up uh, so that you know I, I really consider myself more of a wine grower than a wine maker because um, of that holistic approach of from the vine the fruit and the cellar all together um, in addition to managing our own estate here I um, planted in 96 I guess the first vineyard I planted um, right up here on the top of Shehalem Mountain Harbinger Vineyard uh, with our friends George and Carrie Allworth um, who've subsequently sold that and retired and moved on but we still manage Harbinger Vineyard for a sparkling wine program um, but anyway, to the to the point, it's really um, when you are the person who is uh, planting, pruning, spraying, harvesting the fruit, you get to see that cause and effect year after year. That informs, you know, to your question, it informs your your philosophy. Um, you know, I uh, am I a control freak? No, uh, I'd prefer to not do anything I'd prefer to be lazy and just sit around and you know sip wine but the wine's not going to make itself so I look for um, I look for the control points in the process that I know will give me payback on quality so you know that's how the grapes are pruned um, internode spacing look for bloom the timing of bloom watch the season unfold, measure the heat units, the rain, all of this informs you, uh, your gut as to what kind of vintage you're going to have, therefore how much crop to hang, um, watch for disease pressure. Um, and I think over time, uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is I've learned not to be a control freak, but just to pay attention to those vital few things that are the control points in quality. And I've also learned to um, to try to keep more of a balanced ecosystem. Perhaps in your interviews you've picked up that in Oregon uh, the wine growing community is fairly green. Um, there's you know an organization here called Live, born out of um, the work of, of Oregon wine growers to. Um, put some real meaning behind what it is to be sustainable and adopt some you know, 60 year old international standards um, out of Europe um, for how do, how do you really define sustainability and it all are um, detailed metrics that that add up to creating a balanced ecosystem um, so I think we've evolved to um, managing our property that way uh, for soil nutrition, for creating habitat for um, beneficials, beneficial insects, so that if the place is balanced, I don't have to do so much. The place is taking care of itself. You know, there's a lot of work in creating that balanced ecosystem and paying attention. But I hope I answered your question about how our philosophy uh, has evolved. Um, you know, back in the old days, uh, I didn't want weeds under the vine row. I would not hesitate but to spray 
glyphosate, or you know what Monsanto calls Roundup. And uh, over time, we've evolved to where we do mechanical weed harvesting now. We we don't spray herbicides. Um, back in the day, uh, I might have not thought twice about using some synthetic fertilizers to get young plants going, but uh, now we don't do that anymore. We're doing all cover cropping with legumes and other plants. Um, so you end up with an environment that's uh, much easier to look at and I think creates better wine. Some of the vineyards that we work with, that we lease fruit from now, are um, evolving to grow their fruit biodynamically, um, whatever that means. Um, but it, it's, a, it's an interesting journey that the entire Oregon wine industry is, is on where, gosh, easily I think half the acreage is one way or the other certified sustainable. Um, and perhaps in the fullness of time it'll be closer to 100%. Do you feel that's coming from inside the industry or do you think that's coming from consumers demanding it? Uh, obviously both. Um, my sense is that it's coming from inside the industry. Um, there are quite a few folks that are growing this way um, and not spending the money and time to get certified. So that tells me they're doing that because they think it's the right way mm -hmm. to do it and not because having that um, logo of certified sustainable um, is really at the moment buying them anything. Having said that, um, I think really in the last uh, five years, you know, so here in the mid 2000s, 2010, 2015, in that last um, uh, five year time period, more and more the uh, customers, and the restaurateurs, the wine shop owners are asking, is your wine organic or sustainable? Is it vegan? Um, uh, even and it's uh, it's kind of nice to be able to say e yeah and you know and it has been for the last decade and to be able to explain why that is and why that actually is a better wine. I'm curious from your perspective Annie on the on the consumers mm -hmm. uh, how have they changed in the last say 10 or 15 years? I'd say people are getting a little more um, confident with their level of exploration of wines. Mm -hmm. um, I do everything from riding alongside sales reps in their cars to whatever accounts they're calling on for the day to standing in, in uh, grocery store aisles and pouring for people who walk by to you know high-end wine dinners. And um, people seem a little more curious about wine in the last few years than they have in years past. Mm -hmm. um, one thing, I'm sure the, the, the sideways film has come up in, a, in your other interviews, um, I have mixed feelings about it, but one of the things I love about that movie is it made wine approachable for every person. Um, and it put wine kind of into the consciousness of a lot of people in the States, um, more so than it ever had been before. And so I think since then people have been a little more um, confident to reach out and try things and, uh, trust their own feelings about what, what they like and what they don't like. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's also been, in the last decade, 
a little more exploration into wider varieties, wider varieties of varietals. Um, and we enjoy that because we have some kind of unusual varietals that we work with. And so it's fun to see people getting excited about things they may not have heard of or may not be able to pronounce before, um, rather than it just being the same old, same old on all of the, all of the restaurant um, menus and on all of the shelves. So um, people aren't as afraid of things that have more than two syllables, like Gewurztraminer and Oxerwa and um, Gruner Veltliner. Um, once they are taught how to pronounce it, <laughs> they're more likely to, to be able to engage and enjoy it. Um, but I like that people are being a little more um, innovative and creative with their choices than they used to be. So what made you decide to try some of these varietals? What was the impetus towards going so far beyond kind of the standard uh, Pinot Noir and its uh, relatives up here? Well, we'll drink almost anything. <laughs> <laughs> so and really, uh, this, that, the serious comment is um, we, we love to taste wine. And, um, you know, for example, you know, gosh, it was probably 15 years ago, we were doing some market work in Chicago went out for dinner after the show, after the, the trade show, uh, to a high-end Thai restaurant, and there were five pages of these Gruner, Veltliner wines. I couldn't even pronounce it. I you know, was ashamed to say I didn't really know what it was. So the sommelier said, let me pick a bottle for you, and the stuff blew my mind. It was so um, vibrant. Um, and racy and perfect with spicy Thai food. Um, so I was exposed to a wine because I'll drink anything and uh, got so excited about it that I started researching um, where that wine comes from, how it's grown, soil types, etc. Long story short, here in these northern reaches of the Chehalem Mountain, we have um, Los soil, very much like the Los soils of Austria. Uh, I decided as an experiment to plant an acre of Gruner Veltliner and it's, you know, it's been fantastic. We sell through uh, our production every year and I've planted another half acre subsequently. Um, similarly, um, there are other wines that our colleagues have produced. Um, Oxoa, as Annie mentioned a moment ago, is something that um, my guess is David Adelsheim convinced Oregon State University to to bring in some of these clones and, and experiment with what grows well here in Oregon, both on his side and um, what was the O'Connor Vineyard, now owned by Tim and Gary uh, Ramey, the Zenith Vineyard. Mm -hmm. Some old plantings of Oxerwa that, you know, I loved that wine because we'll drink anything. <laughs> uh, and uh, a block of that came on the market um, from uh, Zenith Vineyard and for the last I think three years now we've been uh, playing with uh, how to produce um, the wine. I think we know how to grow it but how to actually craft it in uh, approach to fermentations um, and learning that you know, Oxerwa, if, if I can do some gender appropriation, is, uh, is Chardonnay's uh, smarter, prettier sister. They are uh, true siblings both derived from Pinot Noir, uh, crossed with Gouet Blanc, 
Um, and I love Oregon Chardonnay, but Oregon Oxawa is, is quite interesting as well. So uh, by tasting things that come across our, our uh, table, um, as we're out there experimenting and exploring, we've come to have not only about 14 different vineyard designated Pinot Noir offerings, but we have Gruner Veltliner, Oxerwa, Tempranillo from a friend of ours in Southern Oregon in the Rogue. So it's nice to have a portfolio of appropriate wines for every event. Mm -hmm. You never get bored trying to figure out how to make them perfect. So what's next? Yeah. <laughs> Gamay, Aligote. There's, a, you know, I really think that the um, Oregon has clearly made a name for itself in Pinot Noir. We've be, we've earned our reputation uh, for world class Pinots here in the Willamette Valley. Uh, I think that we are, as a state, earning a reputation for high-quality wines from um, Southern Oregon and Eastern Oregon, for Tempranillos to the south, uh, Cabs and Syrahs to the east. So the world is realizing that there's something special about these latitudes. And uh, having world-class wines of many varietals is, is quite compelling. As you've gone into the working on marketing over the last couple of decades, I'm curious, you mentioned early on trying to get people to even know Oregon existed as a, as a place and that they grew grapes here. Mm -hmm. What is it like now? Is it, is it, how much, how much has it changed? It feels like the Willamette Valley is known now. Mm -hmm. um, and it used to be kind of this dance between do we call ourselves Oregon, do we call ourselves the Willamette Valley? Um, and I know that doesn't embrace the entire state of Oregon and I recognize that, but um, it does feel like Pinot Noir really did put us on the map, and it's the it's the, the way to get people to Oregon, um, probably the most well-known varietal. Um, and as Scott said, once they're here, not everybody likes Pinot. You know, there might be three people in the party who are here because they are diehard Pinot fans, and then the one person they have dragging along with them who who only drinks white wine or really wants a good Merlot or something, you know. Um, so it's nice to have that wide variety of quality producers in this state of a wide variety of things. Um, the Willamette Valley is something that people can actually pronounce now. Um, that was the other thing, was teaching people how to pronounce Willamette. Um, and and then we have Shehalem. There are a lot of lot of great names we have to. And then we chose Tusqualami, so that's going to be fun. <laughs> um, so it, I think it has changed pretty drastically. I mean, we've been going to places on the East Coast for almost 20 years now. We've been in Vermont and and Massachusetts and D.C. and um, people are starting to really proactively know more than you expect when we first encounter them when we're on the East Coast and pockets of the Midwest and as well. So I think it's changed. I think it's changed pretty drastically. What does a wine labeled Oregon or Willamette Valley mean to you? What is that? What is that? The connotation of an Oregon wine or Willamette Valley wine? Um, I'll answer what it means to me and also what I think it means to um, 
the audience um, of, of people who like wines, um, be they from Oregon or outside of Oregon. Um, a wine labeled Oregon or Willamette Valley uh, delivers surprising quality um, to the uninitiated who are being exposed to Oregon wines for the first time. <laughs> I, I almost invariably get this comment like, hey, that's pretty good. <laughs> or they've tasted through several of the wines available uh, on the table and they go, I like all of these wines. I'm surprised. <laughs> it's like, well, what are you drinking from elsewhere that isn't all good? Or, you know, why would somebody put out a wine that it doesn't deliver? And I've come to learn that, in fact, that is maybe what Oregon has had to do coming from um, obscurity and being forced to compete on the world stage is uh, uh, we had to deliver wines that were of exceptional quality and purity. Uh, and I, the other side of that is I often get the um, impression these wines are a little expensive and then they taste them. Mm -hmm. Or if we can get them to taste wines alongside other world-class wines mm -hmm. um, from um, better known uh, wine growing regions where they've grown high-class Pinot Noir for hundreds of years and they realize these wines deliver equally and probably for less money than uh, a high-end Burgundy or um, things from our friends to the south. So I, to me, that's what Oregon and Willamette Valley means, is quality and purity. Anything to add to that? Um, I, think, I think Willamette Valley... means more... more to do with the the legacy and the length of time that wines have been produced in the Willamette Valley. It's one of the older portions of the production areas. Um, there's a lot of controversy right now with the term Oregon and how things can come from a wide variety of locations and varietals and be blended together. So obviously there's there's some work being done and right now. And maybe not even produced here. And maybe not even <laughs> produced here, right, exactly. So there's a lot of legislation going on right now in that regard. Um, but I, I agree with what Scott was saying. I think there is that that kind of surprise and delight that people have the first time they try wines from Oregon or the Willamette Valley of that level of quality and um, that is part of our reputation that I think, I think the other reason that we've had to work that hard is because we are so young, such a young industry in comparison and we really had to band together and, and it couldn't be a joke. It had to be very um, well done and well crafted in the early days to, to be of any significance and so we've really, really had to be quality producers. From the deck, from the get-go. You mentioned some of your work with some of the organizations in the state, including the Oregon Pinot Camp. I'm curious, a, what prompted your interest in being parts of these organizations, and mm -hmm. also b, um, in the early days of Oregon Pinot Camp, what prompted it to be, get started to get off the ground? 
Uh, what prompted me to get interested in the organizations? Um, I just really wanted to be a part of successfully promoting what we do here. Um, there were a lot of compelling personalities pulling at both of us to get involved. Um, it always seems like there's about eight people that get everything done. <laughs> and we pretty quif quickly, having worked in tech and being project managers and content providers, um, we pretty quickly became um, known as people who deliver and get things done. Annie had and some sought-after skills. <laughs> <laughs> Scott's a pretty knowledgeable and very good presenter. So um, between the two of us, we were pulled in pretty swiftly when we, we joined the industry. Um, Pinot Camp was a, a way to get our brand in front of a lot of people across the nation. It was a way to recruit distributors um, from a more pragmatic standpoint. Um, we proved to ourselves pretty early that it was a great way to get our brand out there uh, as a well-respected group to be a part of. Mm -hmm. I'm also involved in the Willamette Valley Wineries Association board mm -hmm. and being a part of that. Um, again, great minds at the table, um, continuing to further the development of the industry, uh, the geography. And really that passion I have for holding our feet to the fire as an industry and making sure that we continue to be as collaborative as possible. With outside influences coming in from France, from California, um, the temptation is to allow things to swing more towards the corporate ethos. And I really want to make sure we hang on to the homegrown um, mom and pop um, collaborative, um, local feel, and um, thankfully the people who have joined us thus far, um, Jackson Family is a great example, have really stepped up to the Oregon way of doing things. They've gotten involved in Salute, they've gotten involved in Pinot Camp, they've gotten involved in other nonprofits that make a difference in our industry, and they're playing the game in a friendly, collaborative way, just as we do. So um, I kind of am keeping my eye on that kind of thing across, across our industry as long as I can to make sure that we as individuals, we as Raptor Ridge, and then we as the Willamette Valley continue to collaborate and support each other in that rising tide floats all boats perspective. Do you think with the way the industry has grown both in terms of size and as you mentioned in terms of sort of corporate outside mm -hmm. influence as well, do you think that's possible to keep that feeling? I think it is. I think it is. I think we've, we've demonstrated thus far that it is and we've come a long way. Um, and I think there are enough of us that care deeply enough about exemplifying this collaborative attitude that um, as long as there are one or two of us bringing other people up with that same attitude, it'll, it'll keep rolling into the next generation. Um, I'm curious what, <coughs> excuse me, I'm curious what, in, in beyond just purely talking about size, what are the big, sort of biggest changes you've seen uh, since you've gotten into the industry? Like it, the changes I've seen, I 
alluded to earlier, and they go along with the hallmark of quality. Um, the the changes I've seen are um, technique and um, equipment and the amount of effort that producers now go to to make a quality wine. Um, some examples, uh, wasn't that long ago, but certainly I can say 20 years ago, um, we had to do all of our own lab work if you wanted to measure the chemistry of the, um, of the grapes. You could do some basic things, you know, the pH, the TA, um, the, um, the, the alcohol levels. And then um, a few outside laboratories uh, set up shop in the valley where you could drop off samples and now get a whole array of data that could tell you how you are feeding your soils, um, feeding your grapes. They could tell you, are you having healthy fermentations? They could tell you, um, do you have Britannomyces? Do you have spoilage microbes going on? And so it was like these layers kept getting um, peeled back uh, that could guide the quality of your process. I mentioned earlier the, the advent of sorting tables and people in the valley um, making equipment here locally for sorting uh, fruit and uh, fruit elevators as opposed to the old days of you know, dumping it into a destemmer by bucket by bucket. Um, people here in the valley starting to make um, heaters, coolers, stainless steel jacketed tanks, etc. I think the wine industry was a big consumer of this. There's also a you know a beer industry here in uh, in Oregon that has, was the recipient of a lot of um, those stainless steel tanks. Um, so as as the business grew, the um, the tools, the techniques, the processes that accelerated quality also came along with. So that's one of the, one of the things I've observed. Um, you know, and I've, I guess I've seen um, outside interests, that's the wrong feeling or the wrong term. I have seen uh, the advent of, of uh, wine houses from France, from California, um, from elsewhere recognize that Oregon uh, is a amazing place to grow uh, quality wine grapes and to vote with their feet by um, purchasing substantial land here and setting up shop. Um, and some clumsy first starts of um, taking their ethos, their way of growing wine elsewhere and trying to do that here for a few years and realizing that you know the forcing function of our climate, uh, of our cooler climate, the forcing functions of our um, kind of economies of scale or lack thereof, um, have reshaped their early efforts into, um, you know, what is a more traditional Willamette Valley or Oregon wines. Hopefully I'm being clear that um, because we are um, smaller vineyards, um, there aren't huge stretches of land that can be planted to the monoculture of a vineyard. It's really 
things that are between you know 20 and 100 acres at most. Um, and because the average size Oregon um, winery right now is about 5,000 cases, not 50 or 500,000 cases, we are um, a craft industry. Um, and so you, you, that forces how you approach the business of um, producing, marketing, distributing your products, your wines. Um, so those are some of the, the observations I've had about where we are now. And I think that the, if I can adopt the word, the physics of the Oregon structure will keep us that way for some time to come. It, it, it'd be hard to get beyond the gravitational forces of our you know, size and scope of how um, wine is produced here. And if you try to, um, if you try to make wine at, at scale um, and cheaply, it instantly shows. And mm -hmm. it is no longer Oregon wine. It's no longer Willamette Valley wine. What are you, Anne? What are your kind of observations on changes you've seen? Um, it's been interesting to see from when we started in 95, um, which brands have successfully moved forward, um, stood the test of time, um, and had lasting power either because mostly because of the quality of their product, but also because of the interest level of their owners um, or the, the succession plan that they may or may not have had. Um, there have been a lot of people recently selling whose, whose children just weren't interested in continuing. <coughs> um, so that legacy piece is going to be interesting to see moving forward. So I was going to ask you next is, we talk about the past of the industry, what about the future of the industry? What do you see happening? What does Oregon look like 5, 10, 15 years down the road? Boy, if I knew the answer to that, <laughs> I'd have a great job as a uh, wine consultant. <laughs> uh, at, you know, present, present course and speed, the, the industry is, is really growing. Um, growing, I think, double digits in terms of our our wine production. Um, there have been a tremendous a number of new small producers uh, join, jump on in the pool to enjoy this wonderful water. Um, and uh, so the, the future is, is one where there's a lot more choices um, of, of, uh, of producers. There's, there's several other varietals, as Annie was speaking to earlier, that are coming in the scene. Um, Gamay, um, Malbec, Cab Franc. Um, there, there's different styles of wine. Um, the uh, current fad is of uh, natural wines, whatever that means. Um, and uh, orange wines. Um, so the, the other trend afoot is the, the aging and retiring and you know, eventual um, moving on of the boomer generation and giving way to um, 
Gen X and millennials who are um, learning what they like to drink uh, along with their lifestyles. Thankfully, wine is still a good part of that. It's not diminishing, um, but maybe the the type of wine and style of wine is different. Um, so I, I don't have any firm predictions other than it'll change. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Annie? I feel like the craft beer industry has really done a lot to bring people at younger ages towards wine. Um, I don't see it as much as a competition, as a, as, not a collaboration, but it's, it's more um, kind of opening the horizons for people at a younger age to things that are handcrafted versus cheap cocktails and beer. Um, PBR. Um, <laughs> I just, I, I welcome that curiosity that I think has, has been exposed mm -hmm. by people appreciating handcrafted wines, beers, mm -hmm. and craft cocktails as mm -hmm. well. So I think we're noticing more and more younger people coming, obviously 21 and older, but um, <laughs> more and more younger people coming in the door mm -hmm. um, in the last decade, I'd say, um, who already have a bit of knowledge about wines and about um, other fermentation techniques and, and are really very curious and have great questions. Mm -hmm. and so it's really fun to see that. I know I wasn't as well-versed as they were when I was that age, for sure. Um, so it's a fun, that's a fun trend that I hope continues. Um, a couple of things happening currently that might point to the future. Um, currently, Oregon Chardonnay is, is gaining tremendous respect for being, uh, defining a new category of, of white wine. People say Chardonnay, New World Chardonnay. We think of uh, California Chardonnay, which is very fruity, often very oaky, very plush and lush, a successful um, type of, of uh, category itself, which Oregon Chardonnay really has nothing to do with. Uh, Oregon Chardonnays here are uh, much more lithe and tight and citrus-driven, um, judicious use of oak, um, having maybe more in common with white burgundy but yet its own thing and uh, if I'm not wrong I think actually the, the market price of fruit right now for Oregon Chardonnay is above that of the market price of, um, of Pinot Noir if you're just in the market buying the fruit to make wine um, so there's a real pull for high quality high-end um, Oregon Chardonnay so I think Chardonnay will be joining the ranks of Pinot Noir. How it will do so, you know, is it evolving to where there are vineyard designated Chardonnays that gain appreciation or is it more um, the hand of the producer that is gaining the appreciation? But I'm, I'm seeing the ascendancy of Oregon Chardonnay happening right now. Um, and then next is maybe more hope than a hopeful comment as opposed to something for which I have proof. Um, I'm seeing producers of sparkling wine um, uh, joining the fray, we among them, where um, if the region of Champagne 
is known for producing um, uh, grower champagnes where specific sites and specific farmers are creating that farmer fizz um, and gaining notoriety from it from the Champagne region of France. We are seeing a similar thing happen here in Oregon with a, a handful of producers. You know, right now less than 30 people and really probably of any um, scope 10 people designating particular vineyards and growing them from the ground up uh, to make very serious sparkling wine. Um, I mentioned Harbinger Vineyard earlier that that we planted in 96 um, in the last, gosh, I guess it's now eight years, we have converted Harbinger Vineyard to be nothing but sparkling wine. So it is um, Oregon Method Champenois from the ground up. Mm -hmm. um, and it's starting to, uh, it's starting to turn some heads of the, these 30-some producers that are, are crafting um, serious bubbles. So I'm hoping that that is, um, it carves out a place in, in the future of Oregon wines, mm -hmm. um, along with Chardonnay and, and Gamay and Aligote and Auxerrois, <laughs> and of course, Pinot Noir. <laughs> of course. Um, so bringing back down to Raptor Ridge, what's in the future for you? You said you're kind of at a stasis right now in terms of size. Uh, so what do you see when you look, say, five, 10 years down the road here? Um, you know, we continue to do uh, a lot of experimentation um, for, uh, for quality and nuance. Um, historically, I had done all of the, the farming and winemaking myself until recent times when I hired an assistant. Um, as, as we grew from about 5,000 to 10,000 cases, I always had a partner in crime. And uh, here in the last two years, I've had the able assistance of Shannon Gustafson, um, you know, a degreed enologist um, to, to uh, join our ranks. And she's got the same sort of curiosity that I do. And I have to be careful what I say around Shannon um, if I say, gosh, I wonder what would happen if, and then the next morning I come in and there's a lab bench set up with all of the experiments um, of what we could do uh, to approach the wine differently or to pull out different um, nuances. So what's in store for Raptor Ridge is crafting more interesting wines, not more wines. Um, we really, we've evolved to where almost all of the sites that we've worked with for 25 years, but all but a handful, we still uh, work with them. And so our knowledge of those places and how to approach them um, is, is growing and I think creating uh, additional quality and nuance. Um, and all but two of our sites are uh, certified sustainable, organic, or biodynamic. Um, this year, it'll go down to all but one of the sites. So um, we're moving toward um, uh, sustainably farmed organic um, wines of nuance and quality. Um, we continue to focus on vineyard-designated pinots and these other very interesting varietals that I've named. Um, we continue to focus on um, extending that method champenois, which is not a 
not a fast moving thing when you make wine that has to lay down for three years before you even bring it to market so that's evolving um, and uh, yeah it's kind of it's it's kind of, it, it's a slowly evolving business um, including what we do in in distribution where you know they need to see you uh, in their shop in their restaurant two or three times two or three years if not more before they start to open up and treat you as family and vice versa mm -hmm. so now having done this for 25 vintages you know when we travel we oftentimes are staying in the houses of our you know chefs or, or restaurant <laughs> owners uh, or wine shop owners uh, and and that's a real enjoyable place to be so I think I look forward to that future yeah I think that segues nicely into another passion of mine kind of a, a tangent to the collaboration is creation of community wherever we go mm -hmm. and like Scott said some of our best friends across the nation now are, are chef owners um, that we end up inviting into our own home and they invite us in turn into theirs. Um, the other piece of that whole continuum is here at Raptor Ridge with those other interesting European varietals that we make. Um, we create events around not only the celebration of our release but also showing um, wines from the region of origin alongside our own to show that that whole story and wines that pair with them. So when we do the Gruner release, we do Gruner and Oyster Fest and we show Mewa and Tewa and bring people in from eat Oyster Bar and they bring in a variety of oysters. We bring in a variety of Gruners from all over, well, from Austria and here. Um, we do that with our Tempranillo release where we bring in Tempranillos from Spain and we do a paella party. So we're creating that community around those particular varietals. Other ways of creating community are, um, we do also have events here that involve not only wine and food, but also things like yoga and meditation, uh, which is another passion of mine. So uh, I see us really honing in on more experiential situations here at Raptor Ridge. That tends to be something that younger generations look for, um, is more of an experience than walking out the door with a full case of wine. They might want a ticket to an experience instead of um, just the wine. So we're, we're taking heed of that and trying to, trying to build that into who we are and what we do. Um, and it also happens to involve some of our other passions, which is great. It's a nice cross, crossover there. Mm -hmm. Um, so, curious, you mentioned earlier you're talking about uh, succession planning in the industry. I'm curious if you have looked down the road and, and what you want to have happen to Raptor Ridge. Well, we um, want to leave this place in equal, if not better, um, footing from when we when we bought it. Not having uh, children, we're not going to leave the business to um, any of our direct descendants. Uh, but there are folks out there who are interested in following in our footsteps and uh, as long as they continue to, to respect the, the land and the place and the culture um, of the Lamont Valley wine growing region, I think uh, everything will do fine. Sure. One last question for you. Uh, we know this is a, we've done a lot of these interviews and we were talking about earlier, we know this is a, a notoriously difficult industry on relationships, so we always like to ask <laughs> couples who are here, uh, what's your secret? How have you made it work? 
That's a great question because, um, as as you imply, it, it, being married to somebody who's your business partner in the same uh, business isn't always a recipe for success in either one of those. In fact, more often than not, it uh, it destroys marriages. Um, I guess I'm just lucky that I've met someone who um, is very communicative and respects what I do, and the turnabout is the is fair play. Um, we each have our areas of responsibility and you know um, we consult with one another but at the end of the day that's Annie's decision for certain things. Thankfully like the label <laughs> which is a four-letter word. You know, Annie has owned and evolved the whole look and feel the label as the most emblematic part of that. Uh, and done a great job for it. So, um, and I've owned sort of the the quality, the um, taste of Raptor Ridge, uh, even though Annie's involved in tasting every little experiment or trial that I come up with, at the end of the day, um, she respects my uh, area of responsibility. So that um, one rider, one range, um, mm -hmm. that um, respect um, and uh, she's kind of fun to hang out with. <laughs> <laughs> well, and rumor has it that Scott tells people that I taught him how to fight, so I'm not quite sure <laughs> what that fighter. means, but um, we're both pretty brutally honest and um, also I think it helps that we started out friends first and colleagues first and knew that we would, that we worked well and teamed well together before uh, the love connection happened. So I think when you, I mean, based on previous experience, I think for both of us, um, when you start from a place of friendship and honor, um, you really don't want to hurt that person. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a lot more respect. Tease, yes. Tease, <laughs> Tease incessantly, yes. <laughs> but, and we both have pretty wicked senses of humor too, so. I think there's a lot of respect and there's a lot of humor. Um, there are times when we just have to walk away from each other. Um, and I think we respect each other's alone time, too. I think that's been a, a real strength in the last 10 years that we've realized. Um, we, we vacation together, but we also vacation separately um, and have our, our own passions. And, and things we explore. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a meditator. I go away for silent meditation retreats, and, and I really feel that that grounds me. Mm -hmm. Scott meditates on two wheels on his motorcycle. So those those escapes really help a lot. Mm -hmm. Sure. So that's all the questions we have planned for you. Uh, is there anything I should have asked? Anything else you'd like to talk about? Any? Have you noticed the beautiful light? I, we're noticing. <laughs> I know you're focused here on this space, but this it's been evolving. It's been yeah. rising out of the um, out of the forest, sort of diffusing the light. It's gorgeous out today. I could, I could get used to that. Yeah, that's nice. Any other final thoughts? Uh, anything you want to leave with, or do we cover so. it? No, it's very uh, very complete. Thanks okay. for your time. Good. Well. Thank you both so much for your time and for your honest and, and thoughtful answers. And uh, we'll go ahead and stop recording there. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. 
Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.